And those are really the only dreams that I have that I remember, are dreams like that. Um, you know, dreams about terrible narrative events from which I wake up screaming. I just then don't remember a little while afterwards. So, um, so did you dream about the surprise quiz? No, I didn't. I was just kidding. I, I sort of, yeah, you have to, like, I, feel, I find that you have to get certain amounts of sleep in order to, like, dream really well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's more than none. <laughs> so. I had a short period where I dreamt in like color fusion, which was amazing. What's dreaming in color fusion? Just seeing different colors combined. And I, I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> Don't take the paper I'm not real this I'm not really giving you a surprise but I wouldn't do that. I just I mean do you want one? <laughs> How about a redemption quiz? Does anyone want a redemption quiz? I'm not looking at anyone in particular um, for, for a quiz they failed, like right now, on book, up to Book Nine of Paradise Lost. No one wants that? All right. <laughs> okay. All right, then. I will remember that. Uh, okay. Um, you should finish Paradise Lost by um, the Wednesday that we meet again, which is two weeks from yesterday. Um, you can ask at your Seder, how is this epic different from all other epics, um, if you like. Um, and then you can get everyone to read it. In fact, I would say just read Paradise Lost instead of the Haggadah, or in addition to the Haggadah. And if you don't celebrate a Seder, then Probably you don't have to do the Haggadah at all. You can just do Paradise Lost with your family. I'm sure they would love that. Seder of invocation. Go around the table. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we were looking at book three um, and looking at um, God's views and um, um of, the, of, of what justice requires. Um, and then we were looking at book four, and um, just to remind you in particular that Milton wishes in some level, at some level, which is either um, an invocation for himself to be able to do the warning, oh, for a warning voice, or a um, wish that that's what had happened in the plot. That is, oh, if only that had happened. Um, in either case, and I think it's important, again, that it's ambiguous, um, because it's one of those ambiguities um, that either way you get to the same ending. Either way, the thing means the same. Um, it's always very interesting when you get ambiguities that aren't um, ambiguities between two possible um, results. Uh, the most famous one in literature is probably Turn of the Screw, where Turn of the Screw is two novels in one, and it's absolutely you are absolutely unable to tell whether the ghosts in Turn of the Screw exist or not, and um, they're... Um, but meanings of sentences are different if they don't exist from what those sentences mean if they do exist. Um, so that's why it's two novels in one. They're actually sentences which are ambiguous but which mean different things, and the result is that you have different facts about this fictional matter. Um, 
that's one kind of ambiguity. Um, the kind of ambiguity that is what a movie like The Conversation, which I won't give you the spoiler, but um, it's a totally great movie. Um, um, Gene Hackman, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so, if it, so there's an ambiguity in a crucial sentence in that movie. Um, absolutely crucial sentence uh, can be misunderstood as meaning exactly the opposite of what it turns out to mean. Um, and, you know, there are famous examples of this, like Rockefeller sent someone to the London Stock Exchange um, to buy some stock, which you couldn't do on the Internet back then. And um, the guy wired back, I mean, this is his agent in London, and Rockefeller said, you know, get this stock at, at um, three pounds a share, go up to, um, I really want this stock, uh, even if it's three pounds a share, buy it. And the guy wired back, and said, well, I've gone to the exchange, but it's at, at three pounds, three shillings a share. What should I do? And Rockefeller wired back, should I buy it? And Rockefeller wired back the four words, no price too high. Um, and the guy just didn't know what to do. Um, no, price too high, or no price too high. Um, so those are ambiguities where um, the ambiguity is the opposite. Um, I'm partly telling you this because there's a, the, the best book of literary criticism in the 20th century is a book um, with the unpromising title, Seven Types of Ambiguity, um, but it's the most important single book of literary criticism in English in the 20th century. Um, so, but just to, it. William Empson, um, but just to see that, that one type of ambiguity gives you um, completely inconsistent um, meanings. A second type of ambiguity um, will give you essentially the same meaning no matter which of the two ambiguous ways you go. And Milton is often interested in the irony that that second type of ambiguity produces. Um, the irony being, for example, that man there placed with purpose to assay if he by fraud may harm him or worse by some false guile pervert, um, that that can mean that man was placed there by God to see if Satan can hurt him, or that man happens to be placed there, but Satan is going there to see if he can hurt um, man. And the point is that those are different meanings, but the result is the same, that both and it's, it's someone brought up Job that the that the result is that both Satan and God are have agreed on the same situation, which is um, that Adam and Eve are going to be tempted. This terrible thing is going to happen to them. Worse, some false guile will um, pervert them, or they both agree to try Adam and Eve. So there's an ambiguity in the sentence, which turns out to mean it doesn't matter who did it or who's testing them. All that matters is that God and Satan are united at that point in what happens next. They both agree as to what's going to happen next. There's no opposition between them. So the ambiguity suggests an opposition and then collapses it. And so it's not like no price too high and no price too high. It's like, should, I, should we, should we um, test Adam? Yes. Um, and, and even if there are two ways of understanding how you get to yes, you get to yes. Um, this happens in real life all the time. My favorite example of this is, do people know what the word livid means? 
like he's livid with rage. So if you picture, some, picture someone livid with rage, just um, get a vivid image of that. Um, what color do they turn? Purple. Everyone agree? Livid actually means white. It means, they, it means the color drains out of their face. Um, if you go to medical school, you will find that lividity is um, one of the things you look at in a wound or um, in skin tone. And it's basically, if, you, if a wound is livid, it's pale. If you press down on skin, um, it doesn't look red, but it actually drains of color. Um, most people don't know this. And um, if you were to ask a larger class of, say, 100 people, um, probably my, my experience is about 10 or 15% would know that it meant pale or white, and everyone else would think that it meant red. And you could go through your whole life talking to someone who, who thought it meant the other thing from what you thought it meant without your ever finding out that um, these things meant something, that, that you had the meaning wrong or that they had the meaning wrong. Um, and the reason you go through your whole life doing it is because it's still... You change colors because of rage. And the fact that they're two opposite meanings nevertheless collapses into, into a single idea. It's the way you can go through your whole life not knowing you're colorblind. It's only in the 20th century that color... Is anyone colorblind in this class? Do you know? You may not know. Um, but you can go through um, uh, your whole life without knowing you're colorblind um, because you just basically can talk to people about stuff. It's just you're not seeing the colors the same way. You can't be really badly colorblind, as in not being able to um, tell green from red in all contexts. But if you're mildly colorblind, you, may, you could never know it. Um, a friend of mine discovered that he was colorblind when he was in graduate school. He was really surprised. Um, suddenly he realized there was just something that he didn't know he didn't know. Um, so those are ambiguities where you can get the fact of the matter can be opposite, but nevertheless, what Milton likes is to have the fact of the matter be opposite and then to have a collapse into the same result. Yeah? Um, there's something similar uh, in, in the Bible, in uh, the beginning of Exodus. There's, I don't remember which, with which character this happens, but, um, but uh, somebody embarrasses somebody else, um, and they are kind of punished by, you know, the, the, the act of embarrassing is... Is, is just such a terrible thing, and it just kind of moves on. But one of the one of the, um, the the exegetes interprets that as saying that embarrassment is actually um, bringing uh, somebody shame or embarrassment is as bad as killing them because you drain them of their color. Uh -huh. So they turn themselves, they turn white, and nice. that's that's equivalent to death. So that's why it's such a big sin to embarrass somebody. Um, wow. Yeah, that's Rashi. Yeah. That's Rashi on ex Can you yeah. find out where? I'm actually know, interested. In it. It. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. But I'll look for it. Okay. Good. Yeah. I. Um, Good. Embarrassment is something I'm interested in. Um, too interested in, perhaps. Okay. Um, so, wishing for a voice that would have helped Adam and Eve um, to knowledge of the danger that they were in. Um, again, there t there's an ambiguity there, which is, I wish that God had done that, or I wish that I had such a voice that could um, that was so loud that it could be heard in the past, um, so tremendous that my ancestors could hear it five thousand years ago. Um, and in a sense, those two different possibilities are not different. 
because what it would mean to get the right inspiration from God as the muse of Paradise Lost would be both that he could be outside time like God and therefore make himself heard at the beginning of history, but also that God would inspire a different story from the story that God does inspire, which is that there was no such voice. So it's a moment where if you see it as, dear God, I wish the plot were different, then what he's essentially saying is the story you are telling me, which I'm retelling. So just to be very clear about that, the epic convention, which Milton takes seriously, and I think which a lot of poets take seriously, the epic convention of addressing the muse actually takes the form of something that you have seen in, in childhood storytelling, which is when a child knows a story and says to its parents or caretakers or whatever, tell me the story about how Goldilocks was going through the woods and she was really hungry and she came to a house. You know the one. No, I don't know the one. How does, which one? Well, you know, you know the one. Tell me the story about how she came to the house and she saw three chairs and one was too hard and one was... Um, or one was too big and one was too small and one was just right. And the idea is that in asking the muse to inspire you, you tell the muse what it is you, what information you want to know. There's a kind of reflex, um, mirror-like um, situation going on there where the epic and its invocation are the same thing. What an epic is, is its invocation drawn out over 10,000 lines, let's say. So you tell the whole story while asking the muse to tell you that story. However, you also acknowledge that you are able to ask the muse sufficiently well that she will grant your prayer because she helps you ask her. So you're, so there are two ways of, short, of, 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 of describing how this kind of short circuit works. The one way of describing the short circuit is an extremely long short circuit, which is I will spend 10,000 lines telling the muse what it is that I want her to inspire me to sing. And then, whoa, it's done. And then that immediately turns into the other, which is, Muse, please help me ask you to help me. And I will know that you are helping me to ask you to help me by the fact that I can keep going on asking you. So the invocations are really important. For Milton, they're important for a theological reason, which is that what God himself says, is, which is that I will um, um, aid man despite his total depravity, I will give him the support that he needs in order to be able to pray um, the thing that we looked at in God's first speech in book three, um, where he says... I will clear, this is at line, um, uh, let's start at line 178. We did this already. 
But once more I will renew. Sorry, one one seventy six. Book three, line one seventy six. Uh, one seventy three. Man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will. Yet not of will in him, but grace in me. So those who want to be saved will be saved, but not out of their own will, but out of grace in God. Think of that as a description of the invocations. That is, what Milton wants is God to help him speak the poem. What the poem is about is how God is going to help those who pray to him to get what they want. So the invocations are a kind of synecdoche or model of the um, thing that God says fallen human beings will be given by him. So see now God's speech here as being about how the invocations work. Man shall not quite be lost. The poet won't be quite unable to write the poem, but saved who will, but saved if he invokes me. Yet not of will in him, but grace in me. Not because his invocation by itself will be enough, and then everything will happen, but because I will help him to his invocation. Freely vouchsafed, that is, my help to him is freely vouchsafed, once more I will renew his lapsed powers. Again, see those as poetic powers. Um, Milton will later describe his anxiety about what if he doesn't finish the poem? What if an age too late or cold climate or, a, or um, age damp his intended wing depressed? So his powers may be lapsing. He doesn't know whether he has the powers to finish the poem. Yeah. I just have a question. Mm -hmm. Is lapsed in any way sort of playing off of lapsarian? Of course, okay. yeah. Yeah, the, the powers that have, that have fallen. Yeah, what lapse means in Latin is fall. Um, right. okay. And so, so when you talk about pre-lapsarian times, that means times before the fall. Um, so, you know, we talk of, of um, a lapse of the tongue or something like that. Uh, you probably don't, but that's an older name for slip of the tongue. Um, or a time lapse or a lapse in judgment. And that means that something that was there fell away. Um, and we tend to think of, a, uh, because it comes from a lapsarian context, we tend to think of, of it as a temporary fall. That's a theological idea. That's not what it means in Latin. In Latin, it simply means to fall. But the reason the word fall is used is because people who fall can get up again. Um, and Satan can't, but humans can. And so in English, there is this sense of it's a temporary um, deficit. Um, and so his lapsed power, but not always. You know, you can say that the... Um, uh, the government's powers to do something will lapse in uh, January of 2012. Um, and that doesn't mean they'll come back. Um, so not January 2013, January 2012. I saw an anti-Obama bumper sticker today. Um, I agreed, and yet I was pissed off. Um, once more will I renew his lapsed powers though forfeit and enthralled by sin to foul exorbitant desires. Again, remember that moment in Lycidas where, um, where the swain in Lycidas says, alas, what boots it with uncessant care to strictly meditate the thankless muse, were it not better as other use to um, sport with Amaryllis in the, in the shade. Um, that is, um, poetry about this sort of thing, 
when um, what you could do is write poetry. Again, see this as an allegory for poetry. Write poetry um, about sexy stuff, fun stuff, um, secular poetry, um, profane poetry. But no, I'll help him. I'll help you, Milton. Though I will help you to your lapsed powers, though forfeit and enthralled by sinful exorbitant desires, upheld by me yet once more, you shall stand on even ground against your mortal foe, which then would be whatever's tempting him not to invoke the muse to write Paradise Lost. By me upheld, that you may know how frail your fallen condition is, and to me owe all your deliverance. Again, I keep, I'm changing it to you, so that you can feel what it would be like to imagine this as the muse explaining to her invoker why the invocation is so important because that invocation will itself be the poem you will owe it to me and none but me some I have chosen a peculiar grace elect above the rest best poets imaginable um, remember he's just prayed himself to be like Homer or like Thamorous, or like Tiresias, or like Phineas, prophets old. So is my will, the rest shall hear me call, and I'll be warned their sinful state, and to appease betimes the intense deity, while offered grace invites, for I will clear their senses dark, what may suffice and soften stony hearts, to pray, repent, and bring obedience due, to pray, repentance, and obedience due, though but endeavored with sincere intent, mine ear shall not be slow, mine eye not shut, and I will place within them as a guide my umper, umpire conscience, whom, if they will hear light after light, well used they shall attain, and to the end persisting safe arrive. So the point is that there's, a, there's what is often called a virtuous circle here, which is the ability to pray to God couldn't come from us after the fall because we would be too um, profane, too um, full of sin, um, unable to have a right to pray to him. As you will see after the fall, Adam and Eve discuss this issue, um, what they should do now. They know they've blown it, and the question is, what do we do now? Um, and they come up with a lot of bad ideas, um, at least from Milton's point of view. Their, their ideas are bad. Um, there actually may not be such bad ideas, but from Milton's point of view, their ideas are bad. Um, but finally, they do pray. So this is the issue that the poem's going to be about, but the general Protestant view, um, one that Milton, um, one that goes much more with Calvinism and Lutheranism than with, with Milton's Armenianism, that is his belief in free will, um, but nevertheless, there's, this is a place of continuity. The general Protestant view is what prayer does is it proves that God is on your side because God has put an impulse in you to pray. If you didn't believe, you wouldn't be praying. Only people who believe in God pray to God. Um, you may only pray to God under, you know, very bad circumstances. As they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. Um, the idea being that everyone in a foxhole is going to pray to survive. Um, but if you do pray, it's because you believe in God. And what brings salvation is belief in God. 
and only those in whom God has given the capacity to believe, to whom God has given the capacity to believe, will believe and will pray, so that what you pray for and what you show gratitude for is the ability to pray. As long as you have the ability to pray, you're okay, and you should therefore be grateful. As long as you're moved to prayer, you're okay, and you should be grateful. Does this make sense to people? This, the idea is that no one's unhappy in this life. Um, those who pray are, if they really feel that they're praying, um, then that's a sign that they'll be saved. The very fact that you're praying isn't something that's desperate. It's a sign of its own granting. If you pray, the very fact that you're praying is the granting of the prayer. And if you don't pray, then there's no problem either because you don't believe in prayer and you're not saying to yourself, oh, I wish I could pray, but I'm not. Um, so everybody's happy. Atheists are happy because they, they're not moved to pray. And they don't say, oh, no, I only wish I could pray. Then, then I could be happy. And believers are happy because they're moved to pray. And the fact that they're moved to pray makes them happy. Now, immediately you get all sorts of anxiety, um, the best version of which is, as always, in Hamlet. Um, pray can I not, says Claudius. I want to pray, but I can't pray. And suddenly he's right in the middle of... Um, wishing to pray and half-believing, therefore, but unable to pray um, because he simply can't get his belief to be strong enough to overrule his greed. And um, a lot of Protestant um, uh, theological thinkers then make anxiety about whether you're praying or not a sign that you are. If you're tormented by the question, am I praying? Is this a real prayer or am I just going through the motions? That torment is a good sign. If you weren't tormented, that would be a bad sign. But that would then means that the torment risks a kind of paradoxical self-destruction. I'm tormented. Oh, that's good. Now I can relax. Oh, but wait, I'm not tormented anymore. Uh-oh. Oh, wait, I'm getting anxious again. That's good. Can I get myself more anxious? Hey, it's going great, this anxiety. But it's not supposed to be going great. So you get all sorts of really interesting psychological twists and turns when anxiety becomes a sign of the thing that, that you will get what you want. If you're anxious, you'll get what you want. Um, but then you, better, then you start being anxious about whether you're really being anxious enough or not. You have to start probing your own anxiety. Um, so these are all issues that come up. But again, for Milton, they're coming up as invocations. That is, you ask for the muse's help. It's asking for God's help. And the very asking is its own answer. Um, that's the structure of the invocation. So now when we get to book four, oh, for a warning voice, notice that there's a sense in which he's saying, I wish that the story that I was telling had such a voice in it. Oh, God, please tell me a story, or oh, muse, please tell me a story in which this voice does save them. But no, we get the story of Raphael instead, who fails to warn them sufficiently. 
But it's also, um, oh, let my voice be the voice that would warn them. That is to say, the desire for the story and the desire to be the speaker of the story are the same desire. The desire for an event in the story and the desire to be the speaker of the story whose voice will be heard 5,000 years ago, even though they're two roots to the same result, they are the same desire. And that desire is, let me, in invoking you, invoke you as producing a voice that will warn them. Tell me the story, God, of how a voice managed to save them. But that's not the story that God tells. So that's an invocation that's defeated, which is why most people don't see the opening of Book 4 as an invocation. And you can feel that in one single word. I just want to point this out to you in the invocation of Book 4. You can feel that in one single word, which is... Um, look at it again, very beginning of Book 4. Oh, for that warning voice which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud. Then, when the dragon put to second route came furious down to be revenged on men, woe to the inhabitants on earth. Now notice, by the way, that um, he who saw the apocalypse, um, he does hear that voice at least 1,600 years before the voice actually cries that warning because the apocalypse is at the end of time. But John hears it at the beginning of the um, Christian era. He hears the voice coming from the future. So the idea that you could hear a voice coming from the future um, isn't just sort of 12 monkey science fiction. Um, although that is what's so great about 12 monkeys, the answering machine. Um, but it's, it's part of the whole um, idea of Revelation. So he wishes that he too had a voice that could be, that Adam and Eve could hear from the future. Why? So that now, while time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe and scaped. Haply, so scaped his mortal snare. So what's the crucial word in that last line? Um, no, I mean, that's a crucial word throughout Paradise Lost, but I mean, just as far as the dynamic of um, the desire to speak, the desire to hear, the idea that the invocation is simultaneously a speech which is a hearing and a hearing which is a speech, um, and that if only that voice had cried woe to the inhabitants on earth, what would have happened? What would have happened? Doug? It would have happily escaped. Okay, do you have happily as the word? No, I don't know. What is that supposed to mean? Okay, what does happily mean? Anyone? Perhaps. Perhaps. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it actually does mean the same thing, and Spencer will sometimes spell it the same way as happily. But happily in the um, older sense, the word happy actually comes from perhaps or from hap, from mayhap. Um, happily means just by chance a good thing happened. You know, I was late, but happily um, they started late. And um, it, so it was no virtue due to me, um, luckily. Now, if you think of words like fortunately or luckily, those are just by themselves, those are good words also. 
So happily, fortunately, luckily, those are words that all three of them we take as good adverbs. But at least two of them we still have the sense of as could be bad. That is, you can have bad fortune also. Um, by for, you know, it was, it was his fortune to miss the train and um, never see her again. And that would be bad fortune, but it still takes that word fortune. Same with luck. Um, just my luck. That's a bad version of luck. Um, same with hap. It was my hap to, well, to quote Othello, it was my hap to speak of adventures that I had undergone. And that actually is a great irony in Othello because he's saying that is a good thing. It <coughs> happened. Well, it's the word happened also. I happened to speak to her father about my adventures and she overheard this. And so it all worked out. Except he's only in act one when he thinks it's all worked out. Um, he turns out to be wrong. It didn't all work out at all. It doesn't all, sorry, it's a spoiler, but it doesn't work out so well. Uh, yeah, just like Othello. Um, so happily here means maybe. Through fortuitously, maybe. So why is that word there? Well, they might still have fallen. That's what's so interesting. Yeah. He's like calling this warning voice, like, oh, if someone had warned them, they they might have escaped, but they might still have fallen. It's yeah. sort of like even the warning voice might not have right. been enough. So it's kind of interesting that he's even calling for it when it may or may not yeah. happily yeah. affect things. Right. So so I think what this is a place where you can get a little clue into the narrator, which is he's gotten outraged at God. Why wasn't there a warning voice? But then he has to draw back from that a little bit. That's a dangerous position. What's happening in the course of this poem is that he thinks he knows what um, the muse... He thinks he knows the story the muse wants to tell him. And he thinks he knows that the story is Satan is evil, God can do no wrong, um, Adam and Eve were jerks, um, but luckily the sun is going to save us all. Um, now I'm talking about the narrator rather than Milton. And as I say, Milton and the narrator will sometimes converge and sometimes diverge. Sometimes the narrator becomes a prominent figure, different from Milton, sometimes not. Um, and again, as I said before, don't make too much of that. That's not, um, this is just a fact about how narratives work. Um, that sometimes the, a narrator... A narrator um, is clearly not being like the author, and sometimes the narrator is being like the author. Um, the narrative voices are very flexible in that sense. Um, so um, here you get a sense of the narrator, though, which is to say that the narrator is now wondering, look, God just let Satan go right to Eden. Made no effort to stop him, only an official effort to stop him. Um, basically said, don't you go to Eden, and then turned his back. Um, and he made no effort to stop him. Then he sends affable Raphael down when he should have had a warning voice like the apocalypse. And then he, the word happily basically tells you, wait, I'm saying this with due respect. I see that maybe I'm wrong, sir. 
Sir Muse. I I can see that you know it may not have worked out the way I thought it did if they if they'd heard that voice. So happily, there is a very quick. I mean, it's a really interesting word, um, and what it is is it's a kind of very quick recantation of a gesture that was showing the narrator really opposed to the picture of God that he has so far. And it's neat that way. That word is that that's one of those those words that are unassuming but really, really neat. Later there's gonna you're gonna see the word well we probably won't get to it, um, to this line, but there's an amazing use of the word perhaps um, in uh, book eleven. Um, where the narrator um, talks about a mythological figure, um, the wide encroaching um, Eurymon, where he talks about Eurymon, um, a mythological figure, and then he says, the wide encroaching Eve, perhaps. And suddenly he doesn't know. He's told us over and over again who the pagan gods are, what rebel angels they really are. But now he talks about another mythological figure, and he says, maybe that was their name for Eve. Um, I don't know. The wide approaching Eve, perhaps. And there's a sudden moment of humility there um, that's completely unexpected. But it's, I think it's a kind of rhyme or balance to this happily. This happily is God, General Sir, I'm sure you're right. And um, I was just scenario spinning, but you know, I'm sure I'm wrong. But the later one is, I've lost track of Eve. I no longer feel that I have the authority to um, talk about her as though I'm superior to her. And it's a really neat moment. So when you get to that line, just notice it. The use of that sudden, completely unexpected word, perhaps. Um, it's, it's really subtle, and I think it's really beautiful. Okay, so what we then looked at is Satan seeing that gratitude was itself a debt. This is the same sort of short circuit or double circuit that we're looking at with the invocation. That to feel gratitude, and with prayer, that if you pray, then, you're, then the very fact that you're praying is its answer. Prayer is its own guarantee. Um, what you pray for, if you think about it, is some assurance that you'll be saved. You pray for salvation, but it's also you pray for your experience in this life, which is you want to feel that you're going to be saved. But the very fact that you're praying then becomes its own answer. The very fact that you're invoking the muse becomes its own um, uh, response. You ask the muse for help, and by asking, the very way that you ask it produces the poem that you're asking for. Um, and Satan understands the same thing about gratitude, that gratitude is itself the um, repaying of the debt that you are grateful for. And so one way to understand this is to think that if you're grateful, then you no longer need to feel gratitude. However, 
the bad side of that is you have to feel gratitude for the fact that all you have to feel is gratitude. And for Satan, that's the debt immense of endless gratitude, still paying, still to owe. So gratitude is to Satan. So here's going to be a weird analogy, but I hope it now makes sense to you. Gratitude is to Satan what Paradise Lost is to Milton. <clears throat> that is the very thing that is self-perpetuating. You feel grateful over the fact that you don't even, that all you have to do is feel grateful. But all you have to do is, but if all you have to do is feel grateful, you have to feel grateful forever. And you invoke the muse for help to invoke the muse. And if you invoke the muse strongly enough, you'll get your invocation answered. If you feel grateful strongly enough, you'll get your um, uh, reward for which you'll then feel grateful. In all those cases, there's a whirling dervish of a circle that's going on. And that's what Satan can't stand. That for him means that he's not free. Because you because the debt of endless gratitude is eternal. So am I saying that Milton is um, explicitly saying, yes, Satan, the way he thinks about gratitude, why? That's just the way I think about prayer and also about invocation. No, I don't think he's quite make, he's quite consciously making those um, connections. But it's the same structure of a relationship to God which has the form of the request is its own answer. The attitude is its own um, uh, creation and its own reward. Um, that's a structure of thought in Milton. And for Satan, it comes out I mean, he may have thought about it explicitly. I don't want to say he hasn't. I just don't want this argument to depend on your believing me that he did explicitly think this. Um, that's a way, then, of seeing, again, um, both the similarities, the commonalities, and the differences um, between Satan's attitude and God's attitude and um, Milton's own attitude. Let's go a little bit further in Book Four of Paradise Lost. Um, he's amazed when he sees um, Earth, and then Uriel sees how upset he is. That was, as I say, dramatically the beginning of Paradise Lost, was Uriel was going to see Satan cursing the sun, and then he was that was immediately gonna gonna bring the action, get the action going. Um, God, I just saw someone who claimed to be a cherub cursing the sun, and I realized it was Satan escaped from hell. That was the opening of the play. Um, that's a pretty good opening. Um, Falling from Heaven is probably a better one, the way the epic works, but still, as a play, that's a good opening. Um, so go a little further now to line 358 of Book 4, and here is Satan looking at... Eden, and evening is coming when Satan, still in gaze, as first he stood, 
scarce thus at length failed speech recovered sad. So this is the second time Satan is unable to speak. The first time was when thrice he essayed and thrice in spite of scorn, tears such as angels weep burst forth when he sees the fellows of his crime, the followers, rather, millions of spirits for his fault, immersed of heaven, and from eternal splendors flung for his revolt, yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered. So the first time he couldn't speak was seeing the fallen angels. Now he sees Adam and Eve, and he just gazes a little bit like who in the fairy queen? Remember the fairy queen? Spent some time with it? Britomark, good, in uh, that in the House of Buserain, and who else envies his own eyes? He's gazing so much. Uh, well, not or Colin. Colin Cloud is yeah, doing the yeah. thing. And yeah, it's Calidor. So Satan here is like Calidor in book six. He's looking at what he shouldn't see. Naked people. Um, and he's just can't believe how beautiful what he's looking at is. And then he comes and interferes and destroys it. I think there's no question that Milton is thinking of book six of, of the Fairy Queen here. And so what does he say? Oh, hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss, that is the room they left, thus high advanced creatures of other mold, earthborn, perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits bright, little inferior, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So lively shines in them with divine resemblance. So he sees them and he could love them. Why? Because they look like God. And such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath poured. Ah, gentle pair. Remember, they don't hear this. He's soliloquizing, but they don't hear this. Ah, gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches when all these delights will vanish and deliver ye to woe. More woe the more your taste is now of joy. Happy. But for so happy, ill-secured, long to continue. Notice that he sounds like Milton in the invocation of Book 4. You're happy, but no one has taken care to protect you. Happy, but for so happy, ill-secured, long to continue. And this high seat, your heaven, ill-fenced for heaven to keep out such a foe as now is entered. Look at this. This high seat, your heaven. Why, wasn't, why weren't you protected better? This is ill-fenced for heaven to keep out such a foe as now is entered. That phrase, such a foe, God is going to use also of him in book seven about such a foe as now is entered in book six, yet no purposed foe to you whom I could pity thus forlorn, though I unpitied I can pity you though no one pities me, league with you I seek and mutual amity so straight so close that I with you must dwell or you with me henceforth so I want us to be friends either I'll live here or you'll live with me my dwelling haply may not please like this fair paradise your sense yet such except your maker's work he gave it me which I as freely give 
And then to quote Empson again, what he does here is he makes them the eerie offer of all he has. Hell shall unfold to entertain you to her widest gates and send forth all her kings. There will be room, not like these narrow limits, to receive your numerous offspring. If no better place, thank him who puts me loath to this revenge on you who wrong me not, for him who wronged. Can you imagine that? Taking revenge on a human being who did no wrong to you in order to settle the scores because others did wrong. Isn't that awful? Where have we seen that before? Die he or justice must, unless another is willing to pay the forfeit. Yeah, same deal. Someone's got to pay the. Someone's got to be the fall guy. God has said we need a fall guy. Now Satan has said, I really don't want to do this, but I have to. Doesn't make Satan good, but at least he's loath to do it. And. He says, and should I, at your harmless innocence, melt as I do, yet public reason just, so he too talks on behalf of justice, honor an empire with revenge enlarged by conquering this new world compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So spake the fiend, and with necessity the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. With necessity. Tyrant's plead necessity. It's really unfortunate that we have to slash Medicaid and cut taxes, but it's necessary. It's always been the tyrant's plea necessity. Um, where have we seen that plea made before? Who else has used the language of necessity for what he's going to do? God. Die he or justice must. Same thing. Has to happen. No choice. Unfortunate. Has to happen. So the implication here is everything wrong with Satan is also wrong with God. Satan is a tyrant, says the narrator. Well, so is God. It's a pretty sweet trap that Milton has set for anyone who thinks Satan evil, pure and simple. Everything he does is pure evil. Because the more you think that, the more what's good for the goose is good for the God, too, or something. All right, have a good break. See you um, in 13 days. 13 days of looking at Milton. I'm glad someone got it. Yes? Question. Yeah. Uh, the same passage you read. It was uh, your tenure approaches. Everyone should come to look at latex tonight. Um, your, your change approaches. He's referring to the fall. Um, yes, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm just wondering, is that is that where the idea of mutability begins? Where the 